From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Cal Cooper, the author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, is standing by in England, and he's with us for the entire two hours. My technical producer is Owen Wolf. The YouTube channel producer-editor is Ryan White. Now, just a reminder that there are no live streams on YouTube throughout the month of August and the first week of September, but you will find this program up on the YouTube channel, Strange Planet, in a few days. You can access the YouTube channel, by the way, as well as my podcasts and information on this radio program at strangeplanet.ca. It's all there, strangeplanet.ca. It's more than 30 years since Raymond Bayless and Dr. Scott Rogo wrote their groundbreaking book, Phone Calls from the Dead. Well, what's happened since? For one thing, telephones have changed radically, and we've also had various new methods of communication available to us, such as emails, texts, and Skype. But people continue to receive anomalous messages on phones as well as these new forms of electronic media. It's a phenomenon which I've had a long interest in, and I've had some personal experience, as you may well know. So I'm delighted that Dr. Cal Cooper has decided to reprise the subject and bring the work of Bayless and Rogo up to date. Cal Cooper received much media interest for his research into phone calls from the dead after he received the Eileen J. Garrett Scholarship from the Parapsychology Foundation in 2009. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from the University of Northampton and a Master's in Psychology from Sheffield Hallam University. Cal is currently based at the University of Northampton, pursuing doctoral research in psychology and parapsychology. He is most recognized for his research into survival of death, psychic abilities, poltergeists, apparitions, and hauntings. Cal Cooper, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Terrific. I want to ask you, you know, as an academic, some might say that this is a very unusual line of research, studying kind of a bizarre fringe topic from, you know, from your standpoint. Talk to me about how you became immersed in this topic. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I suppose some people would consider it unusual. Um, I, I certainly don't see it so much as that, um, but we'll, we'll get back to that. So how did I get involved? Um, well, I've always had an interest in, in people having uh, anomalous experiences, so looking at human behavior and human psychology. And I guess I never really labeled it as that when I was at school. And we used to have weekly trips to the library. And um, I've told this story so many times over, I'm kind of reliving it in my head. Um, but we used, to, we used to go there, and then the teacher would just kind of let us run free in the, the local library. And we'd go off to our own sections of whatever interest us all. Um, internet was just starting to develop as well, so people were doing that or playing about with uh, computers. And, but me and my friends, like two or three of us, we, we'd go in a group, and um, we, we'd go to the section that was um, paranormal. It was only like just a a corner of the library it really was the furthest corner away from any, anything and then on the bookshelf it was probably about 12 books no more than that where they kind of stuck them in sort of um, teenage interest and then anything that was kind of more heavy like parapsychology textbooks you'd have to order them in this was just a local library so there'd be stuff on local interest um so there'd be stuff there by 
local authors talking about people's experiences of haunting phenomena in pubs and private residences and roads where people have been driving down them late at night and perhaps seen a phantom hitchhiker and it turns out there's a, a long story to that where someone was hitchhiking and they got murdered on that road and since then people had seen their apparition. Um, but I was also looking at books where people were talking about the Loch Ness Monster and what evidence is there for that or Bigfoot or alien abduction. So there was a variety of phenomena which we might call 14 phenomena and it falls outside of parapsychology where we are interested in the mind, human abilities and perceptions and experiences rather than looking at zoological phenomena such as unusual creatures, the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot um, or even ufology, looking at these ideas as well. Uh, but I was interested in the lot. People claim they've had these experiences, they've seen these things. Why? Why do they do that first and foremost? How much do our own beliefs, religious beliefs, paranormal beliefs and our kind of... Um, our exposure to that kind of stuff in in the natural world, especially um, in the media world as well. X-Files was very popular in um, the early 90s as well, so there's certainly a boom in UFO reports and UFO interest. Why do people have these experiences, and what's the, the common explanation for, for them? But even though I was, I was kind of dabbling with those ideas, and I was questioning it, and I was seeing some fascinating photographs and reading some interesting accounts... Um, my interest was was getting into performing arts. That's what I'd kind of been prepared for. I, I thought that's what I was going to do when I left schooling. Um, and so when um, I got towards the end of school, I was getting involved in more and more amateur dramatics. And then when I got to college, I was getting involved in some modeling and I was doing some filmmaking um, through some of the enrichment courses, which was like at lunchtime, you just spend an hour doing what you wanted to do in, in different topics to gain extra credit. So I did filmmaking and, and some of the films that I did, a couple of them, went to Broadway Cinema in Nottingham. So they actually got shown, so I was really pleased with that. But I saw so many people going down the route of wanting to get qualifications in, in acting and performing arts um, to become an actor or an actress. And I thought, this just isn't the way into it. Just because you end up eventually, perhaps, with a degree in this does not guarantee you to be you know, an A-lister that's in all the big films coming up and doing a variety of fantastic roles and being paid to be different people every day. Um, it doesn't happen like that. Um, what you need to do is, you know, keep keep doing it, keep um, getting involved, keep dipping your toe. And it's all about sometimes being in the right place at the right time and being spotted. So I just thought what you need is something you can fall back on. You need something solid. So when I was picking my um, my courses at college, I picked a variety of things. I did electronics, general studies, British sign language, um, and psychology and photography. And so I thought, well, at least psychology, I might transfer that over to university. So if I've got a psychology degree, that can be used for a variety of things. So when I eventually got there, I realized that there were more and more UK universities doing taught modules within a psychology degree of parapsychology. Hmm. And if you went and did that, then you could also do a dissertation because clearly there's the interest there because the staff teaching it. So they have prior experience or perhaps even PhDs in it. So they will supervise projects as well. So that's what eventually got me involved in it. And I more or less uh, stayed there ever since, really. I, I, I have dabbled with acting since, but more so because of my involvement in the media, because of parapsychology, I've met known actors and actresses of the UK and gone along to red carpet things and got to know them and, and met other actors and actresses and uh, sort of like crying on the sidelines thinking this is where I want to be and I'm here but I'm just not quite there, I'm in a different domain. So uh, yeah, that's where I am now, that's how I got here. A fascinating, uh, fascinating journey you've taken but the, the, uh, 
the prevalence of parapsychology is that in response do you think to you know the spiritualist movement being very popular in england the reason why we've got so many talk courses i think is just because of more um acceptance among social science first and foremost i mean we've seen changes in university based courses depending on also media and public interest because let's face it at the end of the day universities are both educational institutions but they're also businesses so if they can think of ways to get people in and do courses um and then they will play on that and certainly parapsychology is of wide interest to a variety of people whether you're anything from a skeptic to a believer and uh, we've had some students that because of programs even like most haunted which was very popular from the year 2000 onwards some students came and did entire psychology degrees just because they knew that they could actually do that talk module and a dissertation they weren't really interested in psychology in general they were interested in specifically parapsychology just one subbranch um and so media interest has kind of changed the amount of courses there are um the rise of spiritualism um that that certainly got people interested it's because of that that we had the formation originally in 1882 of the society for psychical research at trinity college university cambridge um and that's why people came together scholars like henry sidgwick frederick myers and many others that said you know what's going on here people are claiming they can talk to the dead more people are reporting about apparitions and haunted houses these have been in text and literature for centuries but why are we having a rise of that and certainly there was another rise around world war 1 um but they got together and then there was an american branch as well 1884 and was fully formed in 1885 william james being one of the eminent founders of that they were trying to debunk these claims as far as they could but realized that there was something going on there was additional elements beyond the convention so they started to kind of act pretty much the same way as the spr was doing in the uk um and it wasn't until the 1920s really that things shifted from this independent research organizations to actually having university based studies and courses and that's thanks to JB Ryan and Louise Ryan at Duke University and they established many things not only a more scientific journal they established scientific methodology for parapsychology controlling psychic phenomena in the lab and many many other things um and so courses have come and gone over the time but at the moment i think we've got about at least a dozen universities in the UK that have a taught module within an undergraduate degree and then many more beyond that that will cater for research degrees so MPhils and PhDs Dr. Kale Cooper is uh, with us on the Conspiracy Show, co-editor of Paracoustics Sound and the Paranormal, co-author of Conversations with Ghosts and author of Telephone Calls from the Dead. When when you're researching and lecturing on uh, well particularly when you're lecturing on death and bereavement um I mean What is the connection do you think between or have you found between the the grieving process uh and and people who have paranormal experiences whether they believe they've received some sort of a communication from uh, a dearly departed loved one Oh, it's extremely common um I even looked into anthropological literature that was going back to ancient civilizations and kind of taking this para anthropological take if you will on looking at strange experiences even thousands of years ago and people were having them they were being documented pretty much as soon as humans started to document anything um we have elements there of these anomalous experiences people talking about premonitions of the future and interacting with the dead after they've gone so these apparitions and visions um but when it comes to me talking about bereavement certainly I'll bring in the fact that as a consequence the bereavement phase or even as someone's dying we have some of this additional phenomena that's really interesting um that can sometimes provide veridical information so again 
the SPR, they'd found this. They'd found that taking samples of hundreds of people, at the point that someone's dying, they're on their deathbed, there's a rise in people reporting unusual experiences. So not only the dying um, saying that they've had visitations from deceased relatives, uh, sometimes uniquely relatives they didn't know were deceased. They've actually died during the time that person's on the deathbed and no one wanted to tell them in case that actually sped up their own dying process. So that was unique for the family actually hearing they'd had this recent visitation from someone that had just died that they weren't aware of. Um, through to the person actually dying, nurses and physicians and family members reporting strange things such as a sudden rush of a, a breeze going past them or just something changing in the room. Um, even now we have traditions in care homes and some hospitals where when they know someone's dying they keep the window open in this tradition that the soul consciousness personality will leave the room. Um, it's, it's just a traditional thing that there's no kind of basis for that whatsoever but it's a lovely thing based on these experiences people have and then through to the actual bereaved those that are left behind that are carrying on with their day-to-day -day routine without these people um, some recent surveys that have been done uh, I think it was last year when I was reading The Psychologist which is the magazine that comes with the British Psychological Society um, there was a, a study that reported somewhere between 70% of the bereaved reporting having had these experiences. My own research and previous research that I looked at has generally said about 50% of the bereaved uh, population will report these. So they're incredibly common, um, slightly more um, over the 50% average than the other ways, so it's suggesting that more people will have them than not. So I'm partly fascinated as to why we have people that don't have them at all. And also what happens in their coping process afterwards, because we've ultimately seen that people that have these experiences, in terms of their well-being, their positive psychology and ability to cope, recover, remain healthy, they're in a far more positive state for having these experiences, regardless of their belief systems, than those that don't have them. And they do seem to occur regardless of age, race, um, social groups, your belief systems. We're talking spontaneous experiences here. So not going to see a medium because you want to. You're just going about your house, day-to-day -day routines, out driving, visiting friends, out having a coffee, and boom, something just happens. Um, and so they're fascinating. Some people have multiple experiences. Some people just have one, but very, very common. That's fascinating. I, I wasn't aware that it seems to help in the grieving process, that people who are bereaved, well, I mean, it does make sense that they would find comfort in some sort of a communication from a loved one from the other side. But I, I didn't know that it had been studied, I suppose, to that extent. Yeah, we're in the early stages of at least applying measures so we can look at health gains before and afterwards as well. And we're doing more and more tentative research on the mediumship side of things. So we've got some studies at Stansted Hall being done looking into the neuroscience behind mediums. So if they really do claim they're in contacting the dead then what kind of changes are going on in brainwave activity that's research being done by my colleagues what i've done is looked at okay let's look at that group of people that did seek out an anomalous experience by going purposefully to a medium because they didn't want to get stigmatized by saying i'm struggling to cope with grief i had to go and see a grief counselor i'm currently undergoing counseling they went to what's considered a popular entertainment factor which is going to see the medium and most commonly these mediums will come out with very generalized information um, that, you know, you can look at cold reading and barnum scripts and realize you could apply these to many people. True, we could look into instances where it's very specific information, but let's stick with an example. Let's just say it was a very general reading. Even so, that person still kind of latched on to anything they see as a positive, and they will take comfort from that. And um, we're trying to kind of get that research out there, because unless someone's had something where something really unethical was going on or the medium um, just said some things that really 
you know, touched a nerve with some people. On the whole, I've only ever seen reports of, again, people purposefully going to see mediums as a positive, even though we've had popular TV um, people claiming to be skeptics. I, I'm a skeptical activist, so sometimes I don't like to be associated with people that claim to be skeptics on TV that then say something that isn't supported by any research evidence whatsoever. And they'll often say it's very bad that mediums are doing this. It's damaging to the bereave and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, on what basis? On what basis? I've never read any research that said that. I'd love to see the papers because in my hand at the moment, I've got everything that we can find from myself and colleagues. There only seems to be five or six papers that have formally studied mediums in this capacity. So on what basis are you saying it's damaging? Because you believe that they're lying to them and they're taking money for it? Well, you know, you could pay for counselling as well. It doesn't mean to say that the counsellors offering the information they truthfully believe is, you know, what really must be done. You know, we could question that and, and how far in someone's own head they are saying the truth. It, it sends you into a whole minefield of possibilities. So if that medium genuinely believes they're doing it and the person genuinely believes they're receiving a reading, then let's ignore the ontology, what's actually going on, the process is true or false. Let's look at the impact. And the impact says something positive is going on in the vast majority of cases, which is really interesting for us health-wise and people's psychology. That is interesting. I never, I'd never thought of that that way because uh, I guess I would put myself in the other camp and think, well, you know, I'm conflicted by the whole idea of, you know, whether such communication, genuine communication, is possible. I'm open to it, but I'm conflicted by mm-hmm. it. But uh, I never, and I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about, you know. The, the 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 hoaxers and the fraudsters out there that and there are many, uh, but I never thought that even if they are frauds, they're they're doing some good. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. There's some um, mediums that are really out there and they push themselves quite publicly and they've been debunked many times. And you see some photos or footage that makes it very clear or even people writing reports on them. And yet they will still continue to practice and people still continue to follow them. So if, if those people are happy to do so and they're not parting with money to do so, you, I mean, that's another side of things. How far does it become like a gambling addiction to keep going to a medium? Um, if they're not kind of um, losing out themselves by following this person, they're gaining comfort from what they say, fine, fine. I mean, you know, it's the same scenario as a counsellor and how far you t- choose to keep going with the counsellor. I suppose I mean, I, it kind of just sprung to mind because I just saw one drive past the house, but a driving instructor, how far do you keep on paying for a driving instructor as well until you believe that you've got enough advice that you need to actually do things independently? And that's what's going on here. You suffered a bereavement, you've gone to see the medium, but at what point do you decide to step away? Because you've had the messages of comfort that you need, and eventually you are going to have to just live day-to-day life without that person around. And so take the advice, but you can't keep getting it week by week. That's at the point that you really do need to seek proper professional help. Uh, We're heading into a break. We've got a couple minutes here. Uh, And on the other side, I want to talk specifically about telephone calls from the dead. Uh, But I I, want to ask you personally, have you you had uh, what you would classify as a as a paranormal experience um not particularly no i mean i've been involved in um the lab studies for esp and various other things and actually working within parapsychology in the university-based setting not just at the university of northampton but going to other universities as well and seeing what they're doing 
Um, the results are fascinating as far as we trust statistics in social science and, and medicine, and we're looking for you know what's statistically significant. It goes way beyond what chance expects, and also how good the effect is. Um, and so that, for me, looking at the numbers and what it means, knowing that we put all these controls in place, so it's not possible for the participant to cheat, it's not possible for the for the experimenters to cheat, and often the targets are are kind of selected after the study's done, so even the targets themselves, what they're trying to focus on is precognitive. That, for me, is is absolutely fascinating. There's this big debate that goes on in parapsychology that, um, you know, we've got a replication problem. We can't replicate these effects, but I've never seen that personally in my own journey and working with various colleagues. We've had fantastic results at Northampton, and, and I've seen that quite well at universities that I go and visit and lecture at as well. I've interviewed Russell Targ a number of times who... Uh, conducted similar studies at the Stanford Research Institute, and, and he told me, he said, there is more evidence that ESP is real than there is that bare aspirin cures headaches. What do you think of that <laughs> rather bold statement? Yeah, yeah, to a large extent, looking at the, the actual data for it, I would agree. When you look at the meta-analyses that have been conducted, which is a study that looks at all a, a particular bunch of studies that are very similar, and it, it estimates how good the methods were and, and so forth, and it, it even includes those that did find something and those that didn't, it looks at what's the overall effect. And there are some really fantastic overall effects for parapsychological phenomena, even than you can find for the most commonplace psychological phenomena we talk about day to day and that we seemingly accept and yet when you look at the studies they're terrible they're really weak and yet because it's a popular phenomena it's a popular behavior or emotional characteristic we accept it because we've put stupid labels on things paranormal uh, beyond the normal supernatural it's natural but it goes beyond that they are terrible terms as i mentioned with the bereavement instances if it's happening more often than not then how's it paranormal it doesn't make any sense. It's natural. It's not supernatural. It's normal. It's not paranormal. What is supernatural? What is paranormal is why we have minority cases. Why do we have a minority not experiencing it? One in four people say that they've had telepathic experiences in their lifetime. Um, we've even had general surveys done um, that, you know, every time they're taken, they come out with interesting averages of about 70% of people relating to telepathic experiences. Um, so the, the statistics are really fascinating for it. We've got a lot of evidence anecdotally and also in terms of the lab, I think it's been done too much to be often, uh, sorry, to be, uh, it's been done too often to be honest. Um, you know, we've been doing it more often than any other science has actually required of a phenomena. Now, the amount of time studies have been done just to produce statistics after statistics is ridiculous for parapsychology. All right, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, we'll uh, dive into telephone calls from the dead with Dr. Callum Cooper right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Cal Cooper stays with us. The book, Telephone Calls from the Dead. First of all, tell us how we can get a copy of that. That should be on Amazon.co.uk and on Amazon.com. I also think that very soon it needs to be brought out as some sort of ebook or Kindle edition because it was only ever a, a physical copy, and I think that's kind of drast drastically running out and needs at some point an update maybe, but that's where you can find it. This particular uh, phenomenon, does it... Um does it coincide, or does it does its history begin with the actual advent of the of the of the device, the telephone? 
Um, any electrical device that's been created for communication, so even going back to the wireless telegraph, um, people had reported unusual communications over the devices. Um, so you've got a lot of human psychology going on there and a lot of kind of um, misperception and possible false memories as to what really happened or even just a complete misunderstanding of how this equipment actually works. So uh, every time we've developed technology throughout history, you will find reports of people saying they've had unusual experiences with the wireless telegraph, the radio, the telephone, the television, you name it. So it doesn't just start with the telephone. You've classified uh, this phenomenon into, I I believe, three main categories. Um, It was brought into five. Five. So, yeah, when Rogo and Bayless, they produced a book in 1979 called Phone Calls from the Dead. And it was an analysis of 50 cases because they'd not heard of anyone research this before, but they'd been collecting loads of cases of it. So they thought this is time for something to actually come together. And they only published it as a book. It was never a peer-reviewed paper, even though colleagues argued that they need to get round to doing that. And beyond that, they only ever did some book chapters on it. Uh, so it's a shame. So after that, I decided to make it more thorough, put it in the scientific domain, get some peer-reviewed papers done. Um, so it was assessed by colleagues that I didn't know, sometimes even people I don't know, statisticians, you name it. And um, so when I actually took the existing cases of four types, I just found one more where it seemed that they had two types that seemed to have overlaps and you could have two different elements going on. So to summarize, you had type one calls. They were called simple calls. That's where you know you've lost someone and you get a telephone call and you pick it up and you can hear the sound of static on the line and you might hear their voice. They might say your name. They're not really responsive, and it only lasts a few seconds, and you don't hear the receiver go down. So it's a very kind of blunt thing. Um, in more modern stuff with mobile phones, it could even relate to someone passing away and the phone ringing at that same time. Um, but there's no conversation there. I'm more interested in where people claim there's a conversation. Type 2, prolonged calls. That's where telephone rings. You pick it up. You have conversation for half an hour with Brian. Brian tells you about different things you two have been doing, but he said, you carry on with it. You know, I'm going to go away for a while. I need some headspace. Fine. Um, Phone goes down, and Mary turns up at the door. Ding dong. You go and answer it. Mary's very tearful. What's wrong, Mary? Oh, didn't you hear about Brian? He died in a car accident yesterday. And then you're confused because you say you've just spoken to him for half an hour, and she says you can't have done. Confusion hits, and you realize what's happened. Check with the call company. Chances are there isn't any evidence of that call taking place at that time. But interestingly, there could be multiple witnesses to you having taken the call. So what's going on there? Type 3, answer calls. That's where you go and make the telephone call. And it could either be that instance of you not knowing the person's dead, and yet you still seemingly get an answer and a long conversation. Or someone answers who is alive and well, but they were verified to be nowhere near that telephone at the time you claim that you called them, and they've got no recollection of the call. So someone still answers um, with their voice, their characteristics, and their knowledge, and continues a conversation with you. Uh, type 4, mixed calls. Um, that's a mixture of the type 1 and 2 calls, which I found in a new sample. And that could be where you are aware that someone's dead, and yet you have repeated telephone calls from them that are extended. Um, um, so, and, and it could go both ways. You could have a mixture where it's, it's very short and... Um, what was it? Uh, very short and you didn't know that the person was dead either. So that's the mixed calls. And then type five, you intend, uh, these are called intention calls. You intend to make a call. At the last minute, you might change your mind. And yet the person you intend to call still seemingly receives that telephone call by you. 
Um, so it's like those answer calls in reverse in a way. So one example was D. Scott Rogo had this. He said that um, it was 10 o'clock on a bright Sunday afternoon, something like that, and he was planning on making a telephone call to a colleague of his at the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute. Even though he intended to make the call at 10 o'clock in the morning, he never actually did. He went and uh, marked some papers and edited some books instead. And then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, he received a call from the assistant at the office of the very psychologist he intended to speak to with them saying that they were responding to his message. When he asked in Blazers what they were talking about, they said that at 10 o'clock that morning, a call had gone into them from him, leaving his name and his number, asking that the call be returned. So that's what those calls are like. That's all five different types. And, and which which type is the most common? The most common is type 1 calls, and that makes perfect sense when they're occurring around the time of bereavement. You've got a lot of misperception going on. This person is grieving. They'll typically be home alone. They might want that final goodbye. They might not have had a chance to say goodbye. They might have ended on a bad note. Um, people like uh, Robert Baker in his book Hidden Voices talked about these calls in relation to possible intentional amnesia where even though you might get a, a cold call, a double glazing sales company or something else offering insurance, um, they're calling you and yet you've lost a, a son, a daughter, something like that, someone very close and, and you just blank out the fact that it's no one that you know and you're reprocessing it in your head as though you're actually speaking to the dead. Um, that's what he believed as, as to how some people might be filling in the gaps and then adamantly believing they've spoken to the dead. Other ones could be very simple confusion where if they have lost a son or daughter, um, they pick up the phone and they just hear someone say, Mum, Dad. And actually it is a child trying to call home, but when they get a strange response from a grieving parent and they realise oh, that's not my mum or dad, they might not apologise and explain what they've done. They might just put down the phone. For the grieving parent, they might not necessarily want to follow up that call. They just accept it as a very special experience and a sign that perhaps their child is still around them. And yet there's, there's nothing to back that up. When we follow the conventional line of inquiry, we've got so many things that are making something seem paranormal when actually it's not. Even though I am kind of demonstrating all these sceptical routes that we can take and it's so so important to look for those first even outright fraud and, and phone pranksters what we're interested in as well in parapsychology is where people claim that they've got something that seems to go beyond all of these conventional elements sometimes the the prosaic explanation is uh, to me equally as equally fascinating as the the so-called paranormal option in, in other words the the example you gave of someone who who uh, who called the house a cold call to see if you want your windows glazed, and they the person who's grieving completely uh, erased that part from their memory, not deliberately. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's almost as fascinating as the paranormal explanation. What do you think, as an as a psycho you know someone in a, with a background in psychology? Yeah, I mean, I, I hang in the balance of that explanation, and in everything that I've written on the phone course, I've always included Robert Baker's point, because I, I think, you know, you've got to be critical, you've got to present both sides of the argument, and I do think he's presenting a valid case that, you know, we can't really explain either way, but certainly from what we know of memory and also being in high levels of anxiety, in this case separation anxiety, the mind can play tricks. Um, so in that case, yes, it's possible, especially if we follow up the phone call records and we do know that at that time it was a call company. Um, in other instances, though, uh, we know that just purely being in a state of bereavement isn't necessarily a good explanation as to why someone might have a, a full-blown hallucination, um, especially if, you know, over the telephone, they claim that they've had information from the dead that they didn't know about. 
that they follow up and it turns out to be true. So that would go way beyond the hallucination. It would start to suggest that other things are actually going on. Um, so I, I do accept what Robert Baker is saying, because if it's just their word against the telephone, because they were home alone, um, then you've got to consider that aspect and also what they're claiming the deceased person said on the phone. And if they're not saying much except for, I love you, goodbye, then it's a very nice story. It's very comforting for that person, and I would advise you don't explain it away for them. And that's not going to help them at all. They've clearly taken comfort from it. But if you want to write about the common explanations behind these experiences, we will go through telephone faults, the core companies, looking at memory, looking at anxiety, looking at Robert Baker's theory and, and various other ones. We would consider all of these conventional routes, and there are many before you'd even start to touch on, well, what if it's ESP? What if it's PK? What kind of case do we actually have for that? Uh, at the, uh, the top of the hour, uh, going into uh, hour two, I'll, uh, I'll share with you my uh, potential telephone call from the dead, because... Um, you know, I, I'd like to lean on you for some of your expertise and maybe figure out what actually happened there. We'll take a quick time out, come back with Dr. Cal Cooper as we continue to delve into telephone calls from the dead right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Just a reminder, I'll be appearing at Occulticon 2019, which runs September 13th, 14th, and 15th. I'll be speaking on the Saturday. That's the 14th. It's a terrific outdoor conference held in beautiful Holstein, Ontario, at the Mythwood Event Campground. 61 acres of forest and lakes and ponds and plenty of camping spots, full-service cabins. Go to occulticon.com to order tickets, or you can go to strangeplanet.ca and then click on the Live Events and Appearances page, and the link is right there for Occulticon 2019, September 13th, 14th, and 15th. I hope to see you there. Victor Vigiani will be there from Zeland Communications talking about UFOs. Steve Santini, who's on the program next week, will be there with his Paranormal Waters presentation, including artifacts from various shipwrecks like the Titanic. Scott McClelland from Carnival Diablo will be there with an amazing show. It's called The Paranormal Show, not to be missed, and many, many others. That's Occulticon 2019. com. They're also on Facebook, or go to my live events and appearances page at strangeplanet.ca. Dr. Cal Cooper stays with us for the full two hours, the author of Telephone Calls from the Dead. Uh... At one time, they called this, uh, was it called Psychophone Messages? Who came up with that, that name? Um, psychophone Messages, uh, messes, psychophone messages um, was uh, Francis Grierson. Francis Grierson operated under the uh, name Jesse Shepard as a medium in Europe. I think he was originally based in California. And psychophones weren't his kind of term but he was using a psychophone psychophones were these mini uh, recording devices but you you will play wax cylinders um, that were kind of no bigger than a loo roll holder the cardboard that you get in the middle and you could play um, music and um, people were popularly buying inspirational speech on those things the idea was that you go to sleep listening to these things trying to motivate you being good in business and very other thing uh, various other things the idea being that the unconscious mind was still listening and taking in this information and would improve you 
Um, but Francis Grierson was taking in one of these devices that apparently he'd adapted um, with colleagues and took it into a seance room and would have a blank cylinder on and would have it working in reverse. So if you spoke into the speaker, you could record information. And allegedly he was coming out with messages from Abraham Lincoln, General U.S. Grant, Benjamin Franklin, uh, and various other figures, and it's all written up in this very small book that's been uh, reprinted and photocopied, reproduced for um, so people can see it now. It's just called Psychophone Messages, so do check that out. It's a very strange little book. Do any of those recordings still exist? I don't know what happened to the device, let alone the recordings. I mean, every time I've heard about these devices, um, I'd love to know what happened to them. And I especially love the one that was in the UK by a guy called Melton, who was from my hometown of Nottingham that had one of these devices, and it was adapted over time, so even members of the public could try it out. The only device I'm aware of is the Scammel device um, that's still about, and it's in the Society for Psychical Research office in London. And uh, we wrote about that, uh, myself and Steve Parsons, and uh, people like Wim Kramer uh, kind of looking into it further and, and how it works, the early electronics behind it. Uh, and now today we have uh, something that's very popular with ghost hunters and paranormal researchers, something called called Frank's Box. Uh, yes. <laughs> what, what, what do you make of that device? Yeah, there's some people that you really can't convince that, um, you know, saying, look, this, this was a big business device. Um, look at its very kind of obvious makeup. This is a, a purposeful thing that was put out. It's a broken radio. It scans the stations, but the unique thing is it doesn't stop when it finds a beautiful, suitable wave, ba a wave band that's very clear, so you can play that radio station, the music, the conversations, the sports results, you name it. Um, it just keeps going. So you get snippets of a suitable station in between the static. So if you start asking questions to that, why do you think you get suitable replies? Because you've asked a question, your brain is then also scanning for the suitable response. Um, it, it's a gimmick. It's beautiful. It's fascinating. I use it as a tool to kind of demonstrate um, anomalistic psychology to my students. But it's fascinating that some ghost hunters um, are out there still kind of using it, thinking it's anything useful. Not that these people end up ultimately writing anything that gets submitted as a peer review paper um, but whatever they're doing if they're keeping these records themselves and think it's a suitable experiment i can categorically say it's it's not a legitimate experiment by what the very device is designed to do and, and your thoughts generally on evps um, EVP. So I've got a colleague uh, at the University of Central Lancashire, um, Anne Winsper. She's um, finishing her doctorate off, which is entitled The Psychology of Electronic Voice Phenomena. And it kind of um, extends beyond what I've just mentioned as well, that our brains will naturally scan for correct responses and fill in the gaps. And uh, there seems to be a hell of a lot going on there. So she's really updated where we are. The, the biggest study that was done before her in the UK was by David Ellis in the late 1970s. And he more or less concluded... Um, in his book, The Mediumship of the Tape Recorder, that people will fill in the blanks. And he couldn't find anything anomalous going on. And yet people like Frederick uh, Jurgensen, uh, sorry, um, yeah, Frederick Jurgensen and Dr. Konstantin Radova, in their works, they were speaking about all these fascinating words and phrases that were coming out. He couldn't find it. Now, admittedly, throughout the history, there's been some interesting accounts coming forward, but nothing that's really ever fascinated me. All right. We'll, I've got to say that. <laughs> all right. No, no. I'm glad you did. We'll um, we'll come back and uh, talk a little bit about uh, Edison on the other side. With quite literally on the other side with Dr. Cal Cooper right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.
is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Dr. Cal Cooper is my guest here on The Conspiracy Show, uh, the, uh, the co-author of Conversations with Ghosts, author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, and co-editor of Paracoustics, Sound and the Paranormal. And we were talking about uh, Grierson and Melton and um, other people that had designed machines to record spirit voices. Uh, Edison, in a, I believe it was an interview he did with Scientific American, uh, hinted that he was working or would like to work on on a device that could contact the other side. Did anything ever come of that? Um, so that was 1920, and bear in mind people like Melton, they'd already, he'd already published around 1919, and so Grierson and a few others. If you turn to Psychic News and Light and various journals dealing with psychic phenomena at the time, people were dabbling with this idea, and I think Edison caught on to it because he was interested in spiritualism. He got a lot of Polish-American um, lab assistants and would frequently hold seances um, out of pure interest because of how much was going on in psychical research. Even his parents were spiritualists. But I think he was saying this because he got the media platform, and so I think he wanted to jump on it and, and kind of as a sort of a back-off message to those people that were developing such things because imagine the... The, the kind of publicity and the money that you get if not only you could develop such a thing and life after death were a genuine thing so you could actually get in contact with these people that's what it's proposing and um, so you could commercialize it and any relatives you so wished or any deceased person whatsoever you could just ring them up and have a chat um, that's what it was suggesting so I think he was trying to jump on the bandwagon and it's kind of followed him throughout history now because he died in 1931 nothing ever came of it um, obviously because we haven't got this commercialized phone that can contact the dead um, but years later, I think the Thomas Edison Museum's in Texas, and one of their highest requests is from um, amateur paranormal researchers, even through to um, universities, requesting these potential blueprints of a design for a telephone that can contact the dead. And they have to turn people down and say, we don't even hold such things. You know, there's no device, and yet there's been arguments and dabblings throughout time, and I think very kind of false um, newspaper articles and other things like that where people say that they found the blueprint or they found a partial design. Certainly nothing has reached the Thomas Edison Museum. So it's all fabricated, I think, beyond the point of him just suggesting it. And I question his motives for saying it in the p- first place, really. And I can't imagine his shareholders would have been thrilled when he, when he, uh, when that interview was released either. <laughs> yes, I imagine so. Yeah. You know, it, it stopped there. Nothing came of it. Um, I want to talk about, um, the acoustical phenomenon that's related to telephone calls from the dead. You edited a book with uh, Steve Parsons, and you talk about infrasounds, low-frequency sound. What what are infrasounds? So that's more Steve's domain. Steve's background, um, he's got a, quite a varied one, really. He started off in nursing, but then went through into um, looking into parapsychology and focus more so on physics because he had um, a background in electrical engineering and things like that. So he's a physicist more than anything. And his PhDs uh, focusing on infrasound that he's been doing over a very, very long period of time before they even put time constraints on PhDs. And um, 
he's been looking at, you know, what is the relationship between haunted locations, let's say, that contain um, low-frequency sound, this infrasound that's below 20 hertz, and people reporting in those locations unusual experiences, such as a sense of presence, hairs standing up on the back of their neck and their arms, feeling sick and uncomfortable, perhaps seeing corner-of-the-eye phenomena, something fleetingly there, and then when you look, it's gone. Or even right in front of you, a, a blurry vision, something white or gray, gray mist in front of you, and you blink again, and it's gone. Well, it seems that when you are in areas um, that have high levels of infrasound, that's it's fluctuating like ripples of water in the bath. You splash in the bath, it gets to the end, and it comes back again. And if you've got infrasound, it's constantly generating that on a level you can't hear because it's so low. But it's still, because you're there, it's having an impact on the body. Because it's having an impact on the body, it's having an impact on the mind and your perception as well. And so it seems that infrasound is creating these experiences in many cases, um, or at least when you take a generator there as well, you can heighten them if you increase the levels of infrasound. But we have many instances of hauntings that don't appear to have um, a presence of in high levels of infrasound. So not all instances of hauntings can be explained by it, uh, but it seems to be a contributing factor. Can infrasound be sufficient to open and close doors? Uh, it can certainly... Uh, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not speaking as the expert on this. As I say, Steve's the physicist, I'm a psychologist, so whenever we talk about this, I, I'm usually turning to him. But I, I've known it to certainly move things like, you know, you could potentially have a, a cup on a table, and, you know, over time it, it's moving it because the vibrations through the table. That I, I guess that's a potential, and if a door anyway is easy to swing with the push of a finger, and, you know, you've left it in a particular position, over time it might move. Uh, the whole slamming door thing, I'd sooner ask Steve about those kinds of instances. He might have even written about it in his sections in Paracoustics. I can't remember. can't remember. But have you experimented with it? I mean, for example, um, you know, one of the, the supposed telltale signs that you're in the presence of a spirit is the, the, the hackles on the back of your neck, the hairs in the back of your neck uh, standing up. Can, can infrasound do that? Yes, it, it can, and I only know this from, from Steve talking about it and from reading the research papers. I've never personally experiment, experimented with infrasound. I've been with him when he's used it. We did a, a large documentary for a Japanese film crew at Margam Castle, and he was using it there. And about two miles away, I think there was a, a firing range for rifles. And the center of Margam Castle is pretty big. It's a beautiful kind of dome shape with a large staircase. And when he showed me the laptop, there were beautiful spikes of infrasound. And it seemed that when the wind was in the right direction in the valley, two miles away, it was carrying the bursts of uh, sound waves you get from the rifles going off over to Margam. And it would kind of echo through, again, on a level you can't hear, in this kind of uh, central piece. It acted as a beautiful kind of um, resonating chamber for infrasound. So I, I've seen the effects that it can cause. I understand it's working from looking at Steve, but I've personally never experimented with it to actually constantly observe its effects. Steve has, and he's cranked up the infrasound and made people faint and other things. Oh, that's fascinating. He made, yeah. people, he made people faint. Yeah, I think his work with when he's been behind the scenes with film crews when they wanted an infrasound generator there because he's so used to it it doesn't seem to affect him because he's used it so many times um, but he's made people feel so woozy and, and then get lightheaded and you know cameramen and women and stuff like that so it, he's the person to talk to he really is so his background in physics your background in psychology that's quite an impressive I mean to bring those two disciplines together 
uh, and write a book like this. Has that, has that ever been done before? As a f- someone with a physics background and someone with psychology coming together to write about the paranormal? Yeah, it's, it's nice of you to mention that. I mean, um, so Russell Targ and, and Hal Potthoff, I mean, when you look at that, Russell Targ's background is physics. And I would want to say that, I mean, I'm probably completely wrong. I've forgotten exactly what Hal's is, but I make an assumption he had more of a parapsychology element than physics. Um, but it, it makes a really good uh, dynamic duo. Um, and parapsychologists have biologists, philosophers, historians, anthropologists, uh, you name it, but there's been a lot of physicists involved as well, but that was the idea behind it. When Steve and I were talking about it, he said, hey, look, I'll talk about the physics of sound and some of the physical elements of when people experience ghosts and unusual sounds. You talk about the psychology, and then we're bringing uh, contributors as well that have talked about anomalous sounds and the paranormal. Uh, and so that's why we put the thing together. There's a whole chapter on the physics of sound and a whole chapter on the psychology of sound. And we want to take that forward to something. He really wants to do a book on paravision. So looking at the you know the psychology of vision, the physics of vision, and then also unusual experiences people have had with visual perception as well. Uh, we just got about uh, a minute and a half here. Just I, I want to ask you about um, mediumship. And um, the work of Dave Ellis uh, using a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. What, what's going on there? Are we talking about group suggestion, or what do you think is going on? So that that was a, a group suggestion thing. So that there's no, in that sense, the title of the book has nothing to do with spiritualist mediums or psychic mediums. That is the mediumship of the tape recorder. It's literally, is the tape recorder itself the channel for this information, allegedly from discarnate spirits, or are we the people that are creating this phenomena? And he was trying to follow up the, the massive boom there was. Loads of parapsychology journals were having correspondence, heavy correspondence in the back of them about whether what Frederick Jurgensen was doing and um, Dr. Constantine Raudover. There was big hype. Loads of people were in favor of it. Loads of people were against it. And he got funding from Trinity College as one of the student scholars to do a two-year project into, come on, let's look at what's really going on. And he could find nothing but pure psychology going on, saying, look, there's so much suggestion and other things going on. Um, so he, he didn't even really end the book by saying, but I found these flukes or these curveballs. There do seem to be some odd things going on. He, he was quite convinced that there's a hell of a lot of psychology involved in playback on these tapes and when you're told you're about to hear something. And we already know that. You play a, a, a scrambled message up and tell someone, listen carefully, you will hear um, a cooking recipe or something like that or someone saying this, you will start to hear it because the suggestion's been put there as opposed to just saying, listen to this and then tell me what you hear. When we come back, I'm going to share uh, my telephone call from the dead with Dr. Cal Cooper right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. 